Oh man, someone someone's tired. <laughs> I am full of energy. I'm ready to go. Good it thing it's your week. <laughs> yeah, I feel like this happens so often where I'm yeah. supposed to speak a lot, but I'm just inexplicably tired. But yeah. I've been tired for the past two weeks for some reason or week. I don't know what's up with me, man. Um, yeah, same. I I've been really I've been so like exhausted in like physically, mentally, and emotionally. Oh man, the last month. That, so that's that's the holy trinity right there. Yep. That's why I'm always <laughs> looking forward to recording this podcast because it exactly. feels like the, the only thing that really works right now in my life is this podcast. So I need it. <laughs> uh, Chris, I have some bad news for you. Yeah. Okay, of course. That's it. Yeah. It's the last recording. <laughs> oh my God. Imagine. I don't know what um, I would do, to be honest. Be productive yeah. in my life. Ow. Ah, shit. Sorry. <laughs> I, uh, I built my, I say I built, but I'm, I turned my desk into a standing desk yesterday. Oh, nice. So you're going to stand for this podcast? Yeah. Um, this is a trial run. But it's a good move. I did that a while ago. Yeah. But I don't record sta sitting, standing. I mean, I only record sitting just because yeah. you never know how long it's going to take. Let's be honest. Yeah, exactly. With us. Yeah, right. You have no idea. Um, but I, in that case, I do only have two and a half hours yeah yeah <laughs> you can get started sure what do you want to do first though i like train spotting first can we do that because i'm going to use snippets of our conversation up to this point into train spotting intro into the you just spoiled intro. me but that's okay oh shit <laughs> <laughs> oh no wow damn it okay well, actually, my plan today was just like my plan today actually was to just say you know what, Chris? Today we're doing train spotting. There was no funny intro because okay. it's a serious topic and a serious movie, kind of. Yeah. Well, it's not serious, but it is serious. Oh, so you're talking about the movie, not the the action not of the train spotting. No, not the action of train spotting, not the yeah. book, not the sequel. We're talking about the 1996 okay. Danny Boyle film, Train Spot. interesting cool uh let's get right into it i guess i mean that was the plan yeah cool ah oh, shit i can't believe i just spoiled you like that i mean it doesn't really matter because no. whatever but yeah so we're talking about train spotting and just to clarify you've seen it i i have just seen it last year for the first time Whew. all right so. well just made it on in under the wire great yeah so maybe it's fresh in your memory compared to other people yeah relatively sure yeah well to be fair um the movie came out when we were like four or five or whatever, right? Yeah. So it's not like we would have seen it in theaters, ideally. Yeah, that's not that's not a, a movie that uh, children should watch. Yeah. I mean, depends on the child, maybe. I don't know. Um, yeah, but before we talk about the movie Trainspotting, which we will get to what happens on the screen, it's important to talk about the context around the film and what are the, what are the, what are the circumstances that led to... Not the not only the film being made or the move the novel it is based on being written, but the subject matter about the film that is largely the heroin. What word am I looking for? One second. Addiction? Not the heroin trade, not the heroin addiction, but the proliferation of heroin in the nineteen eighties oh. in the UK or in Scotland largely. So the movie is based in Leith, which is a neighborhood in Edinburgh. Uh, which is today, as I will refer you to our blind spotting podcast, highly gentrified and has actually been one of like the hottest spots in Edinburgh and is has Michelin restaurants and is like on the top is on many lists of like the top coolest neighborhoods to live in in the world right now. And in this era in the 1980s, where this where this story is set was really the center the epicenter for heroin and drug use and a significant amount of you know tomfoolery <laughs> in <laughs> in edinburgh and the context in which this happens i'd refer i'm gonna start by referring to a study done by john minton on glasgow university in which he talks about 
the heroin usage in the United Kingdom being a consequence of economic policies in the 1970s and 1980s that are, I mean, we'll get into what neoliberalism is and was and Thatcherism and Reaganism that uh, created double dual classes of people in society. But how John Minton summarized it in saying that these economic policies that disenfranchised a lot of the working class essentially created the erosion of hope within those who struggled in life and turned many of those who suffered from a lack of a social safety net or a lack of essentially hope for the working class to turn towards an emergence supply of drugs and that largely being heroin in particular, because there's obviously a clear, I mean, we're not trying to say that anyone who, I'm not trying to say it any way that anyone who just does drugs is bad in any shape, way, shape or form. And that's part of what this movie is about. Um, But this is sort of one of the ways that policies done or enacted by Thatcher in the UK or Reagan in the United States helped to proliferate the usage or the abuse, I guess, of specifically heroin in the 1980s. And then it's interesting because it is simultaneous to the, quote, war on drugs, the international initiative, I mean, largely led by the United States to stamp out global supply chains of heroin and other drug use uh, of other drugs or the drug trades internationally. And when you consider those policies and the amount of money that went into trying to stop them, juxtaposed with the highly criminalization, the high criminalization of said drugs in a lot of these countries, it really created a terrible backdrop onto which money wasn't going to actually supporting people who needed help with their drug addictions and instead were going towards sort of a futile effort to try and stamp out international drug trade where that was largely you know underground and and made it much more difficult for the actual stamping out of heroin in a lot of inner cities and we've come to see in the so later subsequent decades that decriminalization and treating it as a medical issue as opposed to a criminal issue has led to a significant decrease in deaths and also specifically um, AIDS contraction through sharing of needles, et cetera, et cetera, through the use of heroin. I mean, Frankfurt is a great example of how the city set up clean needle programs and safe spaces for people to conduct and use heroin where without um, fear of being reported or thrown into jail. And it actually significantly reduced a dependency on the drug as well as the transmission of disease through using dirty needles, which are common and really depicted very, quite quite normal, normally in the movie Trainspotting. Um, God, that was a lot, and I'm still not even like a half, a quarter of the way done. I'm on Thatcher. Wow, wow, yeah, but maybe maybe I can quickly say something on yes, that as please. well because it does go back so much longer. Uh, in you know the all the drug you know, dr- drugs as a as a as a vehicle for uh, politicians, uh, and I think one of the more famous examples is how. The Nixon administration—it goes back to the Nixon administration, I think—who, which tried to, which kind of laid the groundwork for the so-called war on drugs, and like more of the one of the more nefarious aspects is how they used drugs uh, in their domestic policy to dis- to discredit critics of the established order. Um, you know, the the two main examples being, you know, the uh, the hippie movement basically the uh um pacifist movement uh being discredited by their kind of relationship to weed and black people just in general but you know obviously civil rights movements 
and Black Panther and all these sorts of things that had um, really had a lot of momentum in the 60s with, you know, you know, crack and other sorts of uh, drugs. And that is just also very, very tangible in the, uh, I think it's called a f the 50 to 1 ratio or something like that, or the 100 to 1, I'm not quite sure, where I think it was in the 80s as well, where there was a difference whether you, like if you were tried for um, the possession of cocaine or crack cocaine, and if you had the, uh, and the for the first being basically a white drug and crack being like a black drug, quote unquote, of course. Or a rich drug and a poor drug. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, the latter had just like uh, that much more of a sentence, a prison sent sentence, basically, which is just real fucked up. <laughs> well, of course. And the war on drugs like that set up by Nixon in the early 1970s was a response to specifically, as you mentioned, the, 19 the turbulent 1960s and was an attempt to socially to, re quote, return to normalcy. So we're blaming drugs on the we're not blaming the actual problems. We're blaming drugs for the problems, essentially, uh, of society in general and that the resultant 1980s which is what i'm focusing on specifically because of the setting of this film was sort of an extenuation of that but also more of a reflection of 1980s economic policies which then worsened the situation for so many of the working class who then turned more towards drugs and specifically heroin and it was the rise of um forget i think it was specifically a, a brown heroin out of iran and afghanistan which then flooded into europe and the united states which became much more accessible so it was a confluence of uh specifically in the 80s this lack of hope by many of those who were then were demonized by society even further than i mean that as you said started in the 1970s as a response to 1960s the turbulent culture specifically i guess 1968 which is the, the high point of that decade and then in as you go into the further into the 80s then you have this realization that oh we can't be a part of this normalized life because we can't we don't have a mortgage we can't we're not going to have children we don't, can't get a stable job like we don't have retirement funds, et cetera, et cetera. So therefore we are part of this other section of society in which we are living, um, you know, in a, in a separate world, in a sense, in an underworld that is demonized by the larger sphere of what is an quote, ideal life under Reaganism or Thatcherism, or I guess neoliberalism in general. And I guess it's the first word, first time I use the, the N word today, but neoliberalism definitely has um, played a, had played a, such a large part in this concept or these policies of this idea of this free market capitalism and trickle-down economics and um, privatization and deregulation or tax reduction for the wealthy, et cetera, et cetera. But that's a whole other can of worms that I think I should limit myself <laughs> to right now. Um, but, and as we'll go into the movie itself, um, while the movie is most controversial for depicting drug use in such a visceral way, especially in a time where it's less normalized in the 1990s when the movie came out, I would argue that it is more about this duality between, quote, life and the underworld, the world of heroin addiction, and these neoliberal policies than it is about drug use drug use is a consequence of the context in which it is it is existing to a large extent and to that specific point i'll quote um irvine welsh who wrote the initial novel train spotting on which the movie is based and he called Margaret Thatcher the invisible author of the book because she made mm. she in his eyes made the conditions for which this movie setting was created and as we talk about or as we consider 
the subsequent inequality created by neoliberal policies uh, that worsened the conditions for so many people who were, in Mark Renton's own words, unable to choose life over uh, their own heroin addiction um, or the situation that they found themselves in, we see uh, a completely different context for this movie and its own depiction of drug use and whether or not really that is the main point of this film. But I, I didn't even know that the movie was based on a novel. Yeah, yeah. So it's an interesting story. So the the trio of Danny Boyle, Andrew McDonald, and John Hodge, the director, producer, and writer of the film, respectively, this was their second film that they had done together. So their first film was released in 1994 called Shallow Grave, which was a thriller that was filmed in Glasgow, and when it, upon its release was immediately lauded by the British uh, Film Institute and by many critics in the UK as, I mean, they were hailed as bringing the art form back to the UK in a large way because they took basically no money and created a film out of nothing and it was absolutely incredibly uh, well-received. And then... Train Spotting was their second film, and they chose to do the film in lieu of taking more money to do a larger, I would say, more recognizable project, and instead took, which now seems ridiculous, they took 1.5 million pounds to <laughs> make this film, and and largely at the time, unknown actors. Uh, I mean, highlighted by Ewan McGregor uh, portraying Mark Renton, but also Ewan Bremer playing Spud, John Lee Miller playing Sick Boy, Kevin McKidd playing Tommy, Robert Carlyle playing Bigby, and just an amazing cast. And putting them together to to highlight the drug use in Scotland or in Edinburgh in the 1980s. And it's interesting because they actually had a lot of trouble with the rights to the movie because of Irvine Welsh didn't want to be involved with the project and movie rights had already been sold to another production company. So in the production of the film, they were actually struggled and it was their biggest, it was the biggest threat for them to actually not be able to release it. Um, but I guess that's not an important point because they were able to get it done in the end and that's all that matters. Right. Um, but it is interesting to think that how much, um, creative license that Danny Boyle was able to take when creating the film. So for example, I think the most, one of the most iconic sequences of the film is the opening uh, shoplifting sequence, which they call back to later on in the film. Mm -hmm. And that sequence never happened in the book, for example. Um, but they allude to shoplifting so many times and it is just a such a visual way of such a great visual introduction to the characters and to the world um, and then, a, you know, a nice circle when it comes back to it, I guess. I mean, not at the end of the film, but, you know, two thirds of the way through the film at the end of the second act. And it is a nice way that I guess I, I wonder to what extent we talk about specifically, we talk about George R. R. Martin and whatever their guys' name are, Benioff and Weiss, whatever the fuck. Mm. Um, and how as his influence decreased, the quality of the show just fell off the map to a certain extent and we talk about uh, adherence to source material or the creative license of the the person creating their uh, the adaptation and i feel like i don't know it may correct me if i'm wrong but from my perspective for most people that i speak to they want as close adherence to the source material as possible or as best of a representation of the source material. But I think that in some cases, and especially when the, it's done by those who are talented, adaptation and divergence from what would is an entirely different medium, so is is spoken of a, spoken of and framed entirely differently is juxtapo justified and actually benefits the story in so many ways. And um, from this film I'd say that the adaptations done by the by the book 
I think were well chosen and just just gorgeous because this film is just shot so beautifully and is done so well that it's so clear that Danny Boyle is such a talented director and can choose how to make his adaptations in a way that is just not only justified but adds to the story in such a positive way Hmm. yeah i think those are two two of the most common criticisms of any adaptation is a the um you know things get left out or changed that aren't in the in the source material or things are not included in the adaptation and b um you know it's just because it's a different medium that uh people have a hard time if something is not portrayed in the way they want it to or maybe it's not depicted at all because it is a different medium and it would be really difficult to do it and i think the second one is something that um, more people can forgive but if i i see that a lot when um you know when it would be possible to include something um and but but you know the creative team behind the adaptation does not do it i think a lot of people including me sometimes have uh have uh you know problems to like a problem to come to terms with that in a way because they themselves of course know it better and are so they come that kind of goes to a very modern problem or a very like contemporary problem where people kind of feel entitled to things that they love and that's kind of obviously a huge problem as we've seen a lot with um online culture and you know people like star wars obviously is always like unfortunately a good example of people like just uh yeah having such strong opinions on it and then you get things like the um online abuse of kelly marie Marie tran for example or i would i would assume that episode nine your favorite star wars movie is kind of a product he's being sarcastic people just fyi (laughs) (laughs) yeah he hates that with a passion um but I think that is partly, par, you know, partly responsible for how overloaded this this movie is. That maybe J.J. Uh, Abrams wanted to please everyone, and I think that's a really, really concerning development in fandom. Well, it's interesting because it's a double-edged sword. Because on the one hand, I'd say it's a there is positive aspects to fandom having a level of or fans having a level of ownership or feeling a level of entitlement because it elicits such a like a passion towards the projects and it creates it allows for them for people to keep delving back into these things right um but as you mentioned it often goes way too far right i mean i wouldn't say that you and i have a like you and i have i mean we have we talk about star wars for like three hours a week mm-hmm. so like we we definitely are part of that online culture of fan entitlement to a certain extent but there is obviously like there's a line that we don't cross and there's a line that other people do cross and that's where it i mean it, it's not it not only related to online fan culture it's just online culture in general right it elicits so much passion in positives but also negative ways and that's it's the sad truth as you mentioned but it also i would be remiss if i didn't mention the positive positivity that comes out of it sometimes and the the communities that people find online through their shared passions so you know it's obviously negative and uh but it also can be a positive in some ways yeah for sure and thanks for you know just just, you know talking about the other side there it's just i don't know i have a hard time with people who are that entitled like i think part of the problem is when people take something and make it a part of their identity and i think that is a huge problem like that it just gets way too close like i love i love star wars obviously like i do a fucking podcast about it 
Um, but it's not who we are. It's exactly. It's like if somebody says I don't like Star Wars, I'm not like I'm not. I don't want to duel them or whatever. You know. <laughs> well, I think that it's not only connected to fan base stuff. Is that there's a lot of polarization and and. I don't want to say identity politics, but identity fandom or identity polarization or a confluence of online culture with, or not only online culture, opinions with identity. And that goes from the political sphere to the fandom sphere to many things that have sort of kind of gone through society as of late. And, you know, people who don't associate with others of a different political um, affiliation or those who don't affiliate with you know people outside of their own little bubble or their world whether yeah. that be through star wars or whatever um like it's it's very interesting uh obviously because nothing that we talk about or nothing that we go through is isolated right everything that we go everything or every topic that we discuss is connected to a larger sphere maybe save for dbz abridged that's just a beautiful one note <laughs> gorgeous form of art in and of itself <laughs> sure sure i mean it it deserves to be in the louvre next to the mona lisa let's be honest i mean fuck fuck the mona lisa just replace it burn that shit man yeah it's like i don't know i guess mona, uh jeff bezos can eat the fucking mona lisa as long as uh google doesn't delete dbc a bridge from the internet yeah well that's where we go crazy <laughs> <laughs> how far along are you with the background stuff because i feel like maybe we should start actually talking about the movie at no, some point no, hold on no i don't have much on the movie itself honestly. oh okay perfect it's, yeah. it's mostly I, background and context okay so. then can, can i ask a meta question please you know i love meta questions is it a meta question or a meta meta question do you how do you decide on the topic for the weekly hook because I kind of have the feeling that I choose I choose them because I mostly because I love the thing and but I increasingly get the feeling that you choose your topics because it gives you the opportunity to talk about the the larger things they talk about and like societal and political and economic uh ties to that whatever it is You'd think that's the case, but no, it's often because I like the thing. And okay. it, it is then, uh, like, I mean, the things that I like are often connected to socioeconomic issues. So Because they all are. Exactly. So then I use that as a platform to talk about it, but it is more because I enjoy the object or the, the piece of art in front of me. And for example, like for train spotting, The reason I picked it is because this is the 20th, 50th anniversary of the film. Ah, I see. It is running in theaters right now. So I went to go see it yesterday in theaters. Ah, cool. And it was... Isn't it nice to... Sorry. Isn't it nice to finally be able to go to theaters again? Oh my God. It was awesome. <laughs> I loved it. I was like... And theaters, it was empty because it's an old run movie. No one goes to see those kinds of things except for people like me. And just like lounging in my chair, nomming on some popcorn, and I'm just like, yes, I'm home. I miss nice. it so much. I mean, it's just, I I don't know. Like, obviously, streaming is a thing, and watching at home is a great thing. But I'm never excited to see a film at home. I'll watch TV at home all the time, but to sit down or commit to two to three hours of of a film, I'm just so much more excited to see it on the big screen. It's I I refer you to the off the hook episode number four. <laughs> oh, I don't even remember that conversation. <laughs> no, that was the uh, the quest the either or questions. I know, right? That that was my biggest regret, and I think. Um, <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, uh, you. I, one of the questions was, was uh, movie theater or streaming. That's what I was referring to. Oh, and I said theater. Yeah, I assume I don't know any of my answers. <laughs> <laughs> I think the fun, the funny thing was, um, of all the questions you gave me, the one answer that I, I'm actually I've multiple times thought of again and just been like, oh crap, I should have answered that differently, mm. was the film versus TV answer. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you were really struggling with that one while you were. Yeah, oh. and I, 
I'm going to give some justification to that. I mean, you if you're interested in actually knowing what we're talking about, go listen to Off the Hook episode four, in which Chris asks me a series of 64 either or questions, and I have to answer them on the clock. And in, 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 the question, in response to the question of film versus TV, I answered TV, I think. And yeah. you were shocked by it. I was shocked by it. And I'm still shocked by it. And I think it might be because I haven't gone to the movie theater in so long. Ah, oh, that's a good point. I have been stuck at home and at home I just have been watching so much more TV than I normally do mm. relative to the films. Um, but hopefully, fingers like crossed a billion times over, I hope we can um, go to the theater sooner rather than later. Mm. So I'm also crossing my toes as if that would help anything. Yes, please. And now that like um, cinemas are back... Uh, there's a cinema in my area that gives you like all you can watch films for 15 pounds a month. Um, so I will be wow. doing that and just going to watch a bunch of films. Nice. Yeah. And mostly like, I mean, there's not a lot of good films coming out, but they do reruns of a bunch of old classics. So those are the ones I'm also really excited to go see. Oh, that's really nice. Yep. Yep. So, um, that was a good question. Thank you so much. And I want to go back quickly to the point that we talked about with adaptations. And it is telling that this is a good adaptation because you didn't even know that it was an adaptation until I yeah. told you, right? And I didn't know it was an adaptation until I started researching about the film, right? Oh, <laughs> cool. So it was like, oh, okay, this is an adaptation. And it's a signs of a good adaptation when you can't tell it was. And part of that is that they didn't write at the beginning that it was based off of a book you know often people or movies will say that up front um but also because it doesn't have any holes in it or any obvious confusing points and because it is a it isn't often uh it's just like a i wouldn't say call it a tight narrative because the show is or the movie is kind of disjointed but in a very tactfully done way um, it doesn't seem like anything is missing per se. The only caveat to that or potential caveat to that is spoiler alert when the baby dies. I don't know to what extent it was explained in the book. I mean, I haven't read the novel, um, but it's an interesting, you know, that's probably one of the only cases where I think to myself, oh, maybe there was something there that could have been missing. But, you know, it, it is definitely a sign to a good movie that it wasn't obvious that it is an adaptation of something else yeah maybe the uh the novel mentions the kid like two or three times or something but i feel like almost uh, with that example i feel like it's almost more powerful that you just see it the once and then that's when everything happens no that's actually a good point i'm thinking about it now and it's it is more powerful because it comes out of nowhere and it's so shocking, man. It's one of one of these scenes that definitely sticks with you for a while, even though you don't want it to. Yeah, and it's it's just such an unforgettable film in almost every sense of the word. In the positive and not the negative, but in the shocking. Um, yeah. So if you think of the scene in the toilet, which makes me gag thinking about it, or um, as he digs through the worst toilet in Scotland for <laughs> a couple like, for his basically for his drugs and just like realizes at that point it's like okay i'm really out at this point yeah and, <laughs> yeah you have sunken very far yeah and the way it's done as well is just amazing because he just like he digs digs through the shit literally and then puts his head in and then eventually like digs his entire body in and then it cuts to him basically swimming in the ocean for it and it's Oh, it's so... And then he just, like, comes back out and then walks out into the bar again. Ugh. Such a... Such a... Such a scene that you just will never forget. No, thanks for bringing it up in my memory. You're very welcome. So, obviously, there's that scene and then the, there's the the dead baby scene where kind of the, the camera pans past the baby as you see, like, a dismembered... Not dismembered, but disfigured. It's just... It's incredible. Such so powerful. When yeah. you think of that scene and then the introduction to it is you don't even see the baby at first. All you see is the mother crying and screaming as she walks around the apartment and she goes back and then you're just like, what is happening? I mean, oh, okay, 
you never know. Maybe it's a bad trip. I don't know what's going on. And then, oh yeah, it's the baby. Holy shit, the baby's dead. Oh man, they're get, they're gonna show it. Yeah. And I think it's testament to the movie that it's a shocking scene, but it's not the only one of that caliber. Oh, of course. And it's not out of. It doesn't come out of nowhere. Even it comes out of nowhere, but it's not out of character with the film itself. Yeah, you can you can clearly see what happened in the last six months. Basically, you can just yeah. backfill it very easily because you know the characters now and you know how they are. And oh god! And you've seen the baby a few times already when they're getting yeah. high with the baby there, and just like how and you're thinking they never really address it, but you're thinking to yourself, how are they raising a baby in this? context like what's like like how does that work and then spoiler alert it doesn't work and it's just such a powerful scene that you just can't forget if you're as you're going back and remembering this film and obviously uh renton's uh experience going through withdrawal when his parents cut him off so essentially he gets arrested for um shoplifting and then he gets put on a pro he gets put on a methadone program and his release is conditional on him staying clean and he does go back for one more hit and on that hit he he starts to OD and then is rushed to the hospital and then as a result his parents force him to cut cold turkey essentially and as and the resulting sequence of him screaming for a new for another hit and going through withdrawal symptoms sweating uh, having visions and hallucinations and those hallucinations are all amazing by the way and i'm gonna go through some of them um if that's all right so of course the one of the hallucinations is diane uh sitting at his bed cross-legged singing a child like a child song singing like a child song to him reflective of the fact that she is underage when they first uh, meet and hook up. And it's interesting, their relationship, I find it very fascinating in the way that she uses her, the fact that she's underage to force him to see her again. Yeah. And then they end up like long distance as well and have actually like a touching relationship sort of, but then her sitting at his, at the, at the foot of his bed, singing a child children's song to him is a reflection of his feeling regret so the visions are essentially manifestations of all of his different forms of regret or all the terrible things that have happened in the film up until that point so there's Mm. the statutory rape that is depicted through diane at the foot of his bed singing a children's song to him there is uh spud sitting on top of the door frame uh with um a ball and chain around his ankles and him representing the fact that he went to jail and not Renton. And Renton just a few scenes earlier mentions that he would uh, rather have gone to jail instead of Spud. And there is obviously the baby crawling over the, uh, crawling on the ceiling towards him. Obviously we had just seen that and just talked about the baby passing away. And there is what I would recommend. I would, I would say the biggest regret that Renton lives with is um tommy in his current state addicted to heroin and the journey of tommy as a character is just such an amazing uh through line throughout the film and he starts as you know a person who has a stable girlfriend who is off of drugs and doesn't ever think that he will ever get onto drugs i mean even the first sequence or one of the first scenes we see of him is either um is with him sitting in the in the apartment with Renton and he's sitting there working out physically like a representation of him being healthy and juxtaposed with uh Renton who's sitting there you know fi- fiddling through the the through, through the videotapes and has as he steals the sex tape that Tommy made with his girlfriend and that single action spiraled into Tommy's girlfriend breaking up with him and then Tommy going into a bout of depression and then asking Renton for a hit of heroin. And when he asks for, when he asks for heroin from Renton, I mean, Renton turns his eyes away from him in just such a subtle way that you could say speaking so much to his desire to not give into that. And he knows Mm. in the back of his head that heroin is bad and he doesn't want to give it to Tommy. So he, he, 
doesn't at all desire that for Tommy. But as soon as Tommy flashes the fact that he has money to pay for heroin, his addiction, he gives into the addiction and he gives into this desire. And this regret is something that he lives with. And this then comes back to Renton's experience in ODing and seeing all of his different regrets. It's just such an it's such a powerful sequence and a scene that sets the stage for his eventual not eventual but his realization that it's not good for him and then he should move on and he does move on for at least a portion of time or a time that he then ends up in London with a job and a bunch of other stuff ensues. I'm not going to go through the whole plot of the film, but just some yeah. highlights here. I think Tommy's trajectory is for me the most interesting and tragic just because he starts out, you know, kind of having his shit together and then he just lapses and it's, it all goes down from there. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, and it's often because of his, his friends, it all starts with yeah. the fact that Begbie and sick boy follow him all the way to London because they get in trouble. And it's they ruin it basically for him. They cause him to lose his job. Obviously, yeah. Tommy goes up, and then they threaten him when they realize that he has some money and that he doesn't want to give them money for a bag of heroin. And it's because they buy that bag of heroin that he has more. He has to dip in, and he's the one who has to try the new batch. And it mm. just spirals out of control. Literally, decision after decision, and it's not. It's an amazing depiction of heroin, not only because it shows why people are in it, you know, because of, I mean, it's for the high. People enjoy the high. We can't, we can't ignore that as a reason why people do it, but it is also a contextual drug in which it is almost impossible to escape. And even though if you can, you have momentary, um, you have moments in which you can, you know, step out as Retton did, get a job, move on, move to a different city, but the context follows you and it, you never really escape. And you never escape the decisions that are made as a result of an addiction that controls your life. And that's obviously, spoiler alert, Tommy dies at the end because of, the, um, because of AIDS that he contracts through his heroin use. And the duality of AIDS and heroin are just de- depiction of such a uh, of such a time that goes back to like the monologue i refer to you to what i talked about 20 minutes ago so <laughs> i'm not going to rehash that yeah yeah it's it's interesting how this movie is also so much about relationships you know and i think it is basically as strong as the uh, as the drug part of it because you have so many relationships and you know you just mentioned you just uh mentioned begbie and uh, sick boy and like how renton can't get away from them and they're kind of they're, they're like really abusive towards him and manipulating him we have tommy and his girlfriend who like their breakup is is the reason why tommy does what he does and ends up where he ends up and also yeah, all, all all of this is just about relationships. The the you know the guys just in general, their whole like one on one kind of dynamics, but also as a group and how it's not really healthy at all. It's actually really unhealthy, um, and it's just and but also yeah, you mentioned it like Diane and and Renton, just like the uh the journey of their relationship in a way is just so fucked up like the way like the way they start and how it transforms like what it transforms into which is really interesting and of course it is like most most explicitly about drug use and what that does to one's life but uh and how that is you know caused by society but i think it's also about relationships how people seek relationships and how they can suffer from it too as i've said with many of the things that i enjoy it's about life in general and it doesn't 
specifically, this is obviously a specific context, but it's about those who struggle and about those who want to overcome something with those around them, or sometimes it, despite those that are around them in those contexts. And it's, you know, about finding often the journey of Renton as a character. I keep harping on him, but the thing is, what's amazing though, sorry, I keep talking about Renton, but every single one of these characters grows and changes so much throughout the context of the film. And it's just kind of almost impossible to go through the layers of this film from one episode or from one point to another. But his journey, so he has two monologues, one at the beginning and one at the end of the um one at the end of the movie. And they're both they're juxtaposed with one another because at the very beginning he talks about are you going to choose life? You know, and I'm why would I choose life instead of choosing heroin, right? Essentially. And it talks about where his position is very clearly at the very beginning. And then at the very end, he says that, oh, he will choose life. He's going to be just like you, is what he's saying. And that journey is not only about drug use, right? So he talks about, okay, heroin is the reason why he's doing his own thing. He's having life. And then he does it. Then he wants to become like a, quote, normal person at the end of the film. That's not really what it's only about. It's about how do you deal with the loss of hope and the loss of uh, or just, yeah, or how do you deal with that loss of hope and finding it throughout the film and over the journeys of everything? And then the fact that he can then choose to be part or choose life in his own words uh, by the end of the film is a very, is a very poignant journey that he does go through. It's just like a, it's an amazing like a punctuation mark to the film that they call back to his original monologue by bringing it back and and saying that he want to you know choose the big fucking tv and the the children and the good health and all these things it's just it's a very interesting just an amazing uh, which in itself is really interesting because that obviously signifies what society tells you is desirable yeah and it's like, yeah, it's very 80s as well. You know, the uh, the home thing. The I mean, I guess it's all still true today. Uh, oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, there are vari- more variations. And luckily, there's more room for wiggle room nowadays. Yeah, a little bit. I'd say a lot compared to the 80s. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. But like a lot, it's still a lot about status. Oh, for sure. And often, maybe there's wiggle room with some of the things with like maybe... There's less pressure nowadays to have kids or get married, especially in Europe as compared to the U.S. But um, with regards to things like jobs, things like having a house um, or a whole and things like that, good health, for example, there's more pressure for that. Yeah, um, for sure. So there's more things on that level that have not changed at all. So it's not about the contents of the things that he mentions. It's more about the the statement of them as a whole, as they represent the standard narrative of what is quote, a good life. All I'd say is that it's just a great film about so many things that are related to the drug trade, but it's the fact that, I mean, heroin usage and um, addiction is not in a vacuum and no one, no one's life and no one turns to these sort of things because of nothing. And, to ignore the context. I mean, we talked more about the context of this film and the background of this film than talking about the film itself. And it is an amazing film and I recommend you go see it or see it at home if you can. Um, but it speaks to so much more than what's on the screen and what is on the screen is absolutely amazing. And that doesn't even, I haven't even talked about how beautifully shot this film is, how gorgeous the colors are, the composition of each shot, the beautiful wide angles that are used by Danny Boyle. It is so well done in such a way that you don't see as much in films in this era. I feel Um, it's, it's akin to, you know, brighter colors of earlier generations of film and and also stuff that we've kind of seen a renaissance of in recent years of use, utilizing interesting camera angles and colors and it is i don't know maybe you have a dis, you can disagree with me but the 1990s are just a 
boring generation of film in my mind. Yeah. Um, and the fact that this movie is so creatively done from A to Z is a depiction of it's just such a departure from the norm of films in the 90s that i think is just makes it all the much better all, all the more better because of the context or because of the time in which it's released so kudos to boyle mcdonald and hodge for this film and also this doesn't even i haven't even begun to talk about ewan mcgregor's um acting in this film as mark renton and it is absolutely jarring and i mean he lost 12 kilos on purpose for this film um and just to look like a drug addict and it just he looks like he belongs in this world and they all do every single one of them does and it's absolutely incredible and you know when i think of ewan mcgregor it's hard not to think of things like you know obi-wan or whatever yay (laughs) And I mean, Ewan McGregor just is like seen as such a classy guy and such a, his mannerisms in his life as well are just, it's so, such a departure from this character, but yet the way he plays it, the way his eyes always have a subtle darkness to them and the way that he embodies life. I mean, it's famous that he was considering actually taking heroin for this role to try it once and just to get into the mind of it. But then he was dissuaded by actually talking to some heroin addicts. Yeah. So it's, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's an incredible like, commitment by Ewan McGregor and he just, he knocks it out of the park and it's incredible in a movie full of amazing performances. His performance stands out as one of the best you, I, I can never remember or ever have seen. So good job, Ewan. Good job. You're a good actor. Right. <laughs> you heard it here first. Unlike the prequels will show you, you are a good actor. Yeah. He will He will get another chance at I actually... I can't wait. Oh, I know. Everything comes back to that movie or that TV show. <laughs> yeah, I know. So We're so excited. But yeah, so do you think... I, I mean, it's a great movie. I recommend anyone who hasn't seen it to watch it, even though if you haven't seen it and have listened to this whole thing, not a great look because we do talk about spoilers. But yeah. it's just such a great film and it's such a window into... A part of life yeah you definitely have to be in the mood for it though yeah but it is the thing is we've talked about it so seriously but legitimately it's so funny it is yeah. it's like laugh out loud funny and as i said with blind spotting if you want to watch a comedy watch train spotting if you want to watch <laughs> wow. a drama watch train spotting i disagree with you chris you don't have to be in the watch you don't have to be in the mood for it <laughs> yeah we will disagree on that that's fine yeah we can always disagree but um i think it's just such a good movie it was interesting yeah. because yesterday I was in the mood for it. I mean, I had seen the movie, so I know it's coming, but I was in the mood for a comedy. And when I watched it, I still loved it. It still hit the hit, hit the perfect notes. But mm-hmm. Okay. If you liked what you heard, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars. If you didn't leave a, like the show, what? If you didn't like the show, why are you still listening? five stars if you want to get in touch there are a few ways you can do that email write us an email to hello at seriallyhooked.com website you can check out our website and suggest future topics at seriallyhooked.com twitter you can find us on twitter at seriallyhooked if you like the show tell a friend or 10 rate us on apple podcasts it really makes a difference and helps people discover the show crap what's the word what's the what's the phrase for when you have sex with an underage child um i'm gonna look it up crime name sex with underage (laughs) underage person i should have done this on incognito